time for sex, the podcast. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sex just isn't good enough. No, time for, time for sex. Hi, Brandon. I want you to introduce yourself. All the titles, all the things. All the titles, all the things? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's dangerous. I know, right? Hi, I am Brandon Ruckdashel. I am an actor, filmmaker, and soon-to-be podcaster. I also shoot photography in New York and Los Angeles and do anything I can to keep my busy mind creative. I think that's the best introduction. See, I couldn't have done it even close to as good a job. (laughs) I'm sure you could have. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about how did you start your career? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I was probably just starting high school and I realized that debate class was full of guys. Mm. and drama class was full of girls. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the ratio was more in my favor if I took drama class. Mm, Fair. And people seem to take themselves a lot less seriously than they did in debate class. I think we were... (laughs) That's no for sure. (laughs) Yes. I, I think we were debating immigration, which is still something that we're debating today. So, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. So I started doing drama class and I really quite enjoyed it. And I did that throughout high school and a series of moves. My dad was working in corporate and we ended up with a move every two years or so growing up and made our way from Minnesota through Utah, through Virginia and when I graduated from high school in Virginia, went to school in North Carolina for musical theater, deciding to continue it along, of course, whether mm. that was a good idea or not. In retrospect, I don't necessarily believe that it's very important to go to college for uh, especially drama. I think some of the fine arts, there's a lot of things you can pick up, but I think drama, you really need to start right off the bat. I was fairly lucky. I moved to New York right after graduation, spent a year doing work as a wine rep for a wine distributor, and then used them to move me back into the city so that I could start auditioning for jobs. Mm. I was lucky pretty early on with that and ended up getting on to a off-Broadway show within the first year called Ascension, where I played a young man who seduces a priest. It Mm -hmm. was gay. It was nude. And it was pretty risky for the time period that it was. This was approximately 2006, I want to say. So things were just starting to open up. We were very lucky with that show. The New York Times came and gave us a huge review, turned us into a breakout hit. We ran for a couple more months. And then I moved to Los Angeles to start working in television. Unbeknownst to me, the luck was going to run out and the writers were going to decide to strike for a year. Oh, yes. Yes, that was uh, really great. Uh, (laughs) Thankfully, I was not a member of the Actors Union, and I booked a small TV series on the cable network Here TV called The Lair, which Mm -hmm. was a gay vampire series. And at this point, you can start seeing that there is sort of a theme going on where I really don't care about the sexuality of the character that I'm playing. And I do try to bring as much humanity into any role, especially when it involves sexual orientation and whatnot. 
did the lair for two episodes on season two. And then shortly thereafter, I got picked up for a run on Coed Confidential on Cinemax, which of course is produced by HBO and had a lovely time doing that. We shot season three in Miami, season four, we shot in Los Angeles. And that takes us up to a couple of years ago where I moved back to New York and bounced between films. Now I've got almost a dozen late night films aside from the TV series that run on HBO, Cinemax and Showtime at any given point. Which is incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And I, I do want to touch back on Ascension for a minute. Yeah. Was that your first time on stage being nude, having to bear everything in front of a live audience? No, actually, I had graduated early from East Carolina University, and we did hair my last semester. And the director, John Sharon, said, you know, this is the point at which usually the nudity is done. Uh, if you want to do it, you can do it. If not, then you don't have to do it. But I was moving to New York fairly shortly, and I was like, well, I, I should probably just do the nudity because I don't want to move to New York and have people look at me sideways when they ask me, oh, you did hair. Or, did you do naked on stage? And <laughs> no, I couldn't because I was at a you know school in the middle of nowhere and everyone would look at me weird. No, I didn't want to have that. So I, of course, dropped my pants for a week on the main stage at ECU. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> like ripping the bandaid off. Yeah, I, I just did it. And I was like, you know, that kind of goes into a lot of things that happened my senior year where I was looking into what really is self-actualization and how does that interrelate to what had been a fairly religious upbringing and realizing that if I'd wanted to go down the route of becoming a performer, I needed to be able to play people of any different type of sexual orientation or even Republicans. You know, I needed to be able to play all sorts of different people and give them a humanity. Getting yourself out in in a in a place that would make you really come face to face with the shame that oftentimes growing up in a religious family can create. Yes, especially when it involves uh, saving yourself for marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There were enough hangups that came up with that one when I had my first experience, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> so I said, you know, why not just do it? And then moved off to New York. And from then on out, people joke that I have a nudity writer on my contracts and anything I do. <laughs> hey, you know, every single one of us, when it comes to like, you were talking about that self-actualization, when it comes to trying to figure out who we are in this life, and what our values are and how we express that within our careers, we have some serious choices to make. And it sounds like you had to make those choices early. And I'm glad I did. I'm very glad I did because I see a lot of young performers coming to New York and Los Angeles every year. And let's face it, where we are as a country right now, if you're middle class, you're basically expected to get a bachelor's degree. And you have very middle class, a sort of Midwestern sensibility, morality, sense of ethics, and that invades into your work and the type of work you're willing to accept. Absolutely. And I watch a lot of young performers turn down roles that probably would have given them a career had they been willing to go there. But many of them are not willing to go there. Even the ones who proclaim to be liberal progressives, many of them would not go on stage and play someone of a different sexual orientation or 
do nudity or do simulated sexual acts on stage or on screen. And I think that comes to that absolute, I probably say it on this podcast 150 million times, that shame and sexuality are so tied close together and they're so tied together from when we're young and how we're taught about sex, how we're taught about our bodies, how we're taught how to interact with the world and those things. So how do you think you learned about sex impacted your life and your career as a whole? That's like a whole podcast in itself, I feel. (laughs) I was really lucky. Schools in Minnesota had fairly thorough sex ed programs. And when I went through them, you really did not have a chance to do a waiver to get out of them. I remember a couple of my cousins managed to get a waiver and get out of sex ed. Their parents, of course, being even more religious and not wanting them to learn about these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Minnesota, Utah even had a very good sex education program. I feel like they covered pretty much everything from STDs to how to put a condom on to, all right, guys, now you've got to check for a possible tumor on your testicles. Mm -hmm. Here's a testicle, and this is what it will feel like if you've got one there, and you should start checking yourself now because so-and-so who played football at the High school next to us found it last year and lost one of his balls and could have lost his life had he gone longer. I think that's actually probably fairly rare, which I think is wonderful that it was taught in school even that early. It should be. This is this is the body we're given and we all have this body. (laughs) Exactly. And I think Minnesota sex education started in fifth grade, if I want to remember right. I don't know if it was fourth grade, but I'm pretty sure it was at least fifth grade. We had our first separate the boys and girls into different rooms, and here's the talk. And it was done, I would say, very well. I mean, I I knew people whose parents started them even younger than that and said, here we go, we're going to sit down and tell you. My parents, on the other hand, my father, what was the saying? K-Y-O-P, I-Y-O-P. Mm-hmm. Keep your own penis in your own pants. <laughs> of the many acronyms my father liked to spout off at one varying moment or another. Apparently his own father did that to him. So progressive for the internet world. (laughs) Ah, the internet. (laughs) It's interesting that the schools were at least thinking in advance of not just not only the things, the scary things like STDs, which oftentimes STDs and STIs that that schools retin kids with don't do this thing or you're going to get this thing and die. But they actually talked about it in a health perspective, that this is not just about sex. This is also about your body. And you need to be able to know when something is not quite right and know how to get help for it. Oh, exactly. And not feel shame for it. I mean, they can always do better. And this was much earlier than people had access to things like Gardasil for HPV or anything like that. I mean, I think I was well outside of the age category that it was approved for by the time it was finally approved for guys. Mm, Yes. I think that that was, see, now I'm going to have to look it up when that actually started, that males could actually be approved for it. But I feel like it was in the last 10 years. Males could be approved as long as they were in the adult industry as early as 2008, I believe. Interesting. But they had to be in the adult entertainment industry, and I think it was specifically done through their industry health center that they had at the time. And I think they could get an approval and you could get a shot, but I don't think it was approved for at least boys even until maybe 2010, 2012. 
So when you think about some of the co-stars you've had in the past, and especially early in your career, those before you had to have sexual scenes with them, did you have conversations? And, and what was that like for you? You know, we never really did have conversations specifically looking at Coed Confidential, which is where I started doing the most number of simulated sexual scenes. And I think I've done well over a hundred on those. You really didn't talk about it. It should have been talked about. It likely should have also been covered within our contracts, but even information about herpes and how it's shedding as much as, what is it, 60 or 80% of the time, even when there isn't an outbreak, that sort of information is not necessarily widely known, and it should be. The fact that you can get it from your partner and they may be asymptomatic, very likely. And I have this conversation with all of my partners. I say, listen, this is the work I did. I worked with people in the adult entertainment world. Most of them have herpes. None of them had outbreaks at the time, but that doesn't matter. Chances are I've been exposed. Chances are I am asymptomatic. I've never seen any symptoms, but there's a good chance that I'm asymptomatic. And I think that that brings up a really good point in that it's a conversation worth having. It's a conversation worth having, no matter if you're talking about in your career or your personal life. And that more than likely, if you're, even if you're not working in the adult industry, you've probably been exposed to something. What is it? 80% of the population has HPV. 80% of the population is in one form of herpes or another that STDs, STIs are extremely common and they are, they are treatable. The part I think is the most important is that goes back to just what you were talking about when you learned in sex ed is how do you be able to identify in your own body what you might be at risk for, or if you are currently carrying anything so that you know how to take care of yourself. For sure. And a lot of those things, unfortunately, do not show up in guys in the same way. And your immune system similar to mine, I have eczema or psoriasis. It's never been quite figured out, Mm -hmm. but I have an overactive immune system. So there is a very good chance that if I did have something, my immune system was suppressing it. Mm -hmm. And when you think about future partners or when you, when you think about even future films that you're that, how do you navigate those conversations? You have the conversation. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's it's not about navigating. And anytime I start seeing someone, I make them aware of the work I did right away because let's face it, everyone Googles a prospective date. Mm -hmm. You're going to figure it out. And I have that conversation well within the first date. I mean, if it is going into a sexual place, I have the conversation because it's irresponsible not to have the conversation. It also opens the door and makes it easier for the other person to say, well, actually, you know, I had gonorrhea last year, but it, you know, it's, it's, you know, I took the pills. I can hear people even saying it, it even as you say that, like I'm, I'm hearing things that my friends have told me, things clients have told me in the past, and it's just laden with shame. I'm ashamed of this thing. I'm ashamed of my body. I'm ashamed of this thing that I had because we as a culture have paired not only shame, but that sex is dirty or sex is wrong. Well, we fetishize. Yeah. We, we fetishize sex. We fetishize the body. We fetishize genitalia and fetishize many other things that we should probably not be fetishizing. So what is happening in your world? You're about to be a podcaster. I want to hear all about, I, of course I Googled you. 
<laughs> I saw, I saw, I saw, I want you to talk a little bit about Grinder. I want you to talk a little bit about the upcoming podcast that you're going to be doing. Yeah. Well, Grinder is about a young guy who gets seduced to move to New York City by a model agent and a photographer becomes obsessed with him. It is kind of part Midnight Cowboy, a little American beauty. It's based around a lot of my stories from when I was getting started as a young guy in the industry. Also, a number of my friends, I've known a number of people over the years who have had varying experiences with model agents or acting managers or casting agents or producers or even critics, even writers, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And so I put a lot of that stuff together and put it into the thriller that became Grinder, which is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, really easy to find. You can go to watch.grindermovie.com or just look for Grinder on Amazon Prime and it's free with Prime. And it's doing fairly decently. I'm very happy about it. <laughs> yes, Amazon, bring me those boxes and all the movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we're in a new world. It's an amazing place to be as a creator. Yeah. The ability to self-distribute, to self-record, self-produce, self-film, almost anything you could imagine. And then the resources, I know people have varying feelings on Amazon and they don't necessarily treat their workers very well, but it is not aggregated. Most people do not understand that to get your film on Netflix or Hulu or any of those other streaming services, you need to pay a fee to be pitched by a company. Mm-hmm. Then they can turn you down for any reason they want to. And Netflix specifically stopped acquiring LGBT content about a year ago. Interesting. Yes, they do not acquire it anymore. I have a couple of friends who are fairly prolific gay filmmakers and they can't get their films on Netflix anymore. You have to wonder, like it makes you want to pick up the phone and call somebody and be like, hey, why why is this a thing? Why is this happening? Either they're planning their own stuff. That that is, I would imagine, Netflix, not even just in this case, but I often think that they keep people out when they want to put something in its place and create profit from it, of course. It's a niche market. It is a niche market. I agree with your sentiments on that, but I don't think that's what they're doing. And I think instead, because of the nature of the market, it's a little too risky for them. They're very corporate and similar to many corporations that also happen to have their fingers into production, they've done everything they can to remove the dirty, risky sex. A couple years ago, not not too long ago, the Cinemax producers were replaced who normally bought the erotic content, and they stopped buying erotic content. They stopped first with the television series, and then they stopped buying the movies themselves, which is fairly unfortunate because many young boys and girls learn about sex for the first time by watching Cinemax. Whether that's healthy or not, that's up for debate, but... I have been approached many times by young teenagers who, oh my gosh, you're so-and-so. Yes, that's that's me. And I do wonder if we still had that, would young kids learn what they know from hardcore porn on the internet they find? You know what I mean? It's it's about access. And when I think of a kid and what you are first, especially before the age of the internet, when I was a kid, it was magazines first, right? 
you yeah. stumbled upon some magazine or you stumbled upon somebody's lingerie, like a Victoria's Secret catalog or something like that, then maybe you would actually see some sort of something through static on HBO or something like that. Exactly. And now the access that kids and very young kids have is, I think, very hard for parents to grapple with. I think they don't often know what to do. Well, they need to grapple with it. I'm I'm not a therapist. I'm not. (laughs) Although sometimes I wonder because being very much in the public, I get quite a few very interesting messages on Facebook and other social media from people asking me questions. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Things in which they should probably go to an actual therapist and discuss with them, (laughs) like cheating on their wife with another man because they just want to give it a try. Yeah. That's when you just send them my card. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. I don't think that parents should run away from it screaming. I think they need to grab it by the balls and immediately deal with it as soon as someone can go on the internet. Yes. You cannot go on the internet without coming across any type of content you could imagine. You could accidentally search one thing and you've got three other things that just show up, even if you've got safe search on. Absolutely. And something I, when I tell my clients and I tell the the parents that I've worked with in the past that the internet will not give your children context. Will not. No, it won't. And what I'm starting to see just kind of on the ground is with my younger partners, they tend to go more towards riskier sexual behaviors. And I'm not talking about just going into, oh, anal. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about choking. I'm talking about slapping. I'm talking about actual rough sex. Mm-hmm. The anal conversation is a whole other conversation upon itself. But when someone's asking you to choke them on a first sexual experience, I think that we need to sit back and say, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? I almost wonder if the riskier sexual behaviors have increased dramatically in the last 10 years. I've noticed it. Mm -hmm. I can say, at least anecdotally from being a therapist who works with people who not only been through sexual assault, but also are currently seeking sexual partners, one of the things that they come to me and say is, hey, I... I wasn't game for something so extreme all at once. And it seems that the extreme is on the table from day one. And that to me is problematic. Yeah, that's very problematic. I just look at it from a safety perspective from my side. I'm a guy and I don't think my pretty face or my bubble butt would do very well in prison. (laughs) And so I try not to, you know, I, if someone asks me to do that, especially on a first experience, I'm not going to be down for it. It's not responsible. And I think that's oftentimes what's, what's happening is there's an expectation and it's not to say that kinks are, kinks are great when they're negotiated. (laughs) And like you just mentioned, when they're done safely. And I'm not trained to choke someone. I, I'm not using names or anything, but recently I had someone who we were in a shower together and she asked me to put my fingers onto her arteries in her neck and she wanted to pass out. In the sh- and I was like, what? Are you out of your mind? Are you? No. There has to be 
and this is one of the things that I think is one of the most important things, especially adults can do is being able to one, learn and know your partner two, try to express your expectations of safety. And I think some of that is being left behind. Oh, very much. I mean, I should have had a warning sign when there was a service dog involved. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I mean, I, I used to have to check the pill cabinet to make sure that there weren't too many antipsychotics in there. I do live in New York, okay? They are overprescribed. <laughs> but now I've got, to, I've got to ask the question, so we're on the first date. You don't happen to have a therapy dog, do you? <laughs> I mean, like, this is the world we're entering into. Yeah. It's... Maybe I'm just a child of the 80s or something. <laughs> so how do people find you in the world generally, other than just the Google? Well, mostly the Google. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the web. I'm on Facebook. Brandon Ruckdashel, R-U-C-K-D as in David, A-S-H-E-L. I am not hard to find. You can simply Google the last name and to my parents and relative chagrin, I am generally the first person that will come up in a Google search. <laughs> you do have a very recognizable last name. It has become even more so due to my own misbehaviors. <laughs> so as far as the new podcast, tell me a little bit about that. How are people going to find you? What's it going to be called? It's going to be called Rucked Up. It will be at ruckedradio.com. I will have everyone from comedians to porn stars to actors and actresses and just really interesting people on the show. I haven't quite figured out whether it's going to be an interview format or more of a let's get around the table and have a glass of something and talk, talk, talk. Oh, I love all of that. <laughs> it should be really fun. Exotica in the Exotica, New Jersey is coming up, I think, in November. And a lot of my friends who I did Co-Ed Confidential with and a couple of my popular movies like Lust in Space and Erotic Vampires of Beverly Hills are going to be there. And I plan on bringing them up to my hotel room and we're going to have some great conversations. And record all of the things. <laughs> oh, yes. I bought a wonderful little mobile kit that allows me to work without a computer. That's going to be so wonderful. I cannot wait for the first episode. And I'll make sure all my listeners uh, have all of the things so that they can find you and find the episodes as well. Cheers. So is there anything else that you want the listeners to know? No, I, I think they know more than my parents do at this point. So <laughs> been excellent talking with you, Erica, and I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media, and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.